In this episode of the Fit for Golf podcast, I am joined by Justin Parsons. Justin is a golf coach whose pupils include Lou Eustazen, Harris English, Brian Harmon, and Patton Kazire. As you can probably guess, Justin is a great coach and he is very interested in how humans can train to perform better. In this episode, we dig into how Justin approaches golf improvement. He provides many valuable nuggets along the way. A quick reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. It is currently being used by over 4,000 golfers around the world, ranging all the way from PGA Tour winners to high handicap beginners to juniors and seniors. There are programs to suit everyone and the detailed video instruction makes it very simple to follow. You can get 20% off a one-year subscription by entering the code FFGPOD at checkout. You will not find it in the App Store. You must go to the website www.fitforgolf.blog forward slash app. Now to the episode with Justin Parsons. Today, I am very happy to be joined by a fellow Irishman, Justin Parsons. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Mike. How are you doing? It's, uh, it's, good. it's good to be on. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time out. Justin, for anybody who doesn't know, could you give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you do now in the golf world? Yeah, I mean, uh, without without going uh, going into too much detail, you know, I was an avid golfer growing up. Um, ended up by hooker by crook, turning pro in in, in Ireland, not golf club up in Belfast, and uh, did my my traineeship there, and 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 learned the ropes from Gordon Fairweather, who's Family had a great history in the game of golf in, in, in Ireland, Northern Ireland. His father, grandfather, Sid, was five-time Irish champion, I think, uh, professional championship. And um, I hurt my back, lower back, to uh, 25, 26 years old and ended up teaching full-time at, at Blackwood Golf Centre in, uh, in Bangor. Great amount of lessons I was able to give in three or four years. And I, I made the jump to Dubai and, and uh, worked hard in Dubai saw it kind of flourish just before the big recession in 2008. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be approached by, uh, or sorry, yeah, 2008, um, just as about I was being approached by the Harmon family to open up the golf school there. Um, I worked there for 10 years, uh, fluctuating from, you know, a real kind of director of instruction role into, you know, working with some more tour players and things like that and um, having had a little bit of success. Um, I was approached by Sea Island um, out here in Georgia to, uproot myself and my family again but we've had a, a, a really nice you know coming on to three years here so we're uh, you know we're working hard and pleased to say i had a good 2021 and uh, you know just like i look at you know what you're doing mike we have to stay on top of things and try and keep keep growing and keep learning and keep trying to make uh, make players better and um as they get as they get used to my accent and all the stuff that comes out of my mouth you know i, I gotta try and keep mixing it up and keeping it fresh yeah, it's a fantastic background. So Sea Island, for anybody who doesn't know, is an unbelievable facility for somewhere to be basically trying to either get better at golf or play golf. Would you tell us a little bit about your role at Sea Island and then we might get into some of the work that you do with the tour players? Yeah, yeah we've got an amazing um, facility. You know, we've got uh, force plates. We've got seven launch monitors which is incredible we've got 3d we've got gym we've got a an incredible putting studio and we, we've really got a very multifaceted staff because we've got a fantastic resort um with uh with hotel guests that sometimes are, are keen golfers and sometimes aren't so keen golfers so we've got a, a staff that'll look after from the beginner player to the group business to the junior player 
Um, we've got a fantastic player development program at Sea Island. Um, I, you know, I'm really my role is to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm someone that the, the tour players who live in the island can look upon, um, whether in a, in a very formal, like it's me and him kind of role or it's me and her or whether it's even a, a, an advisory capacity. And, you know, furthermore, I'll, I'll look after some some guests, some college golfers, some corn ferry guys. And uh, so, you know, so my role is, is, is specific in that way that I'm. I'm able to travel. I'm able to, to to leave for a couple of weeks on end to to go to tour events and things. And when I'm here, like I have been in the last three or four weeks, I'm you know working hard with uh, you know, with players of every level. Yeah, fantastic. So I've heard about or I heard about you through the grapevine years ago. Just uh, an Irish coach that was doing really good high level coaching, and I started following you on Instagram, um, and I was. You know, really interested and impressed with, I guess, the the thoughts that you were sharing. Obviously, it's hard to get fully inside a coach's head just by picking up snippets that are posted online. But you definitely get an idea of, I guess, you know, what their philosophies are or the type of things they think about. And then we eventually met down in Tory Pines at the Farmers er earlier this year. So you spend an awful lot of time on the road coaching PGA Tour players. Would you be comfortable telling us who you coach on tour and maybe digging into how the work has been going with them? Yeah, currently um, I help Louis Toysen, Harris English, Brian Harmon, Brandon Grace, and Patton Kazire. I, uh, you know, those are my kind of five full-time players that I help, and I, and I, uh, I look at. I mean, I've looked after Jonathan Bird for for a few months on the island. Uh, Jonathan lives lives there. Ben Coles, who's got his PGA Tour card. Um, I help Bill Haas a little bit, you know, really, you know, I, I, I think it's really been more of a, like he's dipping his feet into a couple of things and, and, and certainly I think would, would like to get into your world. And uh, I think that would frankly would help him an awful lot. Um, and I've got one or two other corn fairy guys that I, that I help on and off. So it's, and it's an incredible place. You know, we've got some guys that, you know, one of my fellow coaches there, Chan Reeves helps Keith Mitchell. Um, so sometimes Chan will ask me about my thoughts on Keith and, and furthermore, I'll ask Chan's for his help with me with, you know, Patton or Brian. And, and I think that's so important to have those uh, valuable linkages when you're, when you're doing this job. Excellent. So how many weeks in a year, roughly, are you away with the tour then, uh, Justin, compared to being back in Sea Island? Oh, I did. Um, what did I do? I did 17. I think I, uh, I couldn't have worked it out. I think, you know, I would like to be able to be doing, you know, 15 to 18 weeks a year, with everything that happened in with COVID and all of the sorts of, of bits and pieces, I think I worked it out. I, I did like like twenty four events in in uh, a year and a half. So you know, and so it was a it was a lot of it was a lot of golf um, that we ended up playing. We had we doubled down on the major championships. Yeah, um, I was very fortunate to have the Ryder Cup, which was which was thrown at me. So in an ideal world, you let's say fifteen to eighteen, and as you and I both know, Mike, that probably becomes twenty very quickly. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about two of your more well-known players, at least to the, the kind of general golfing public, Harris English and Louis Eustazen. So Harris English's world ranking in 2018, he finished the year 353. In 2019, he finished 183. In 2020, he finished 28th. And he's going to finish 2021 in 17th. That's obviously a huge improvement. Can you tell us what has changed for Harris or where the biggest areas of improvement have been? Um, I think that, 
I think I was very lucky to get a player like Harris English on his home turf where I was going to be able to work with him away from golf tournaments. So I always kind of say that because, you know, Harris works worked with some really talented coaches, some compatriots of mine and some friends of mine. And, and, and frankly, it didn't work. And part of it not being able to work was the fact that, you know, he was he was oftentimes doing things at tournaments and then trying things out during events. And, you know, as we know, that really doesn't that, that doesn't hold its its head up under pressure. So, uh, you know, I, I was able to kind of figure out how Harris ticked, you know, what sort of golfer he was, what sort of learner he was, what sort of individual he was and really began to set up, you know, um, a very individual holistic way of, of helping to teach him. So, you know, we, we went about, you know, looking at his alignment, looking at his rhythm, looking at his balance, looking at the way he walked into golf shots, creating situations that he wasn't comfortable with, figuring out how he was reacting to those uncomfortable situations and then starting to reframe the way that he would maybe react and the things that, you know, he would have to do a better job of. And it was a, you know, it was a big thrill to see him responding so well to that. Um, he was able to see that it was, wasn't just his golf swing that was maybe misfiring. It was his approach to hitting shots. Uh, you know, notably when he wanted to hit a fade shot, he would pull the handle further left. And we're still working through some things where, you know, getting him away from that sort of feel that sometimes good players get those, those safe sort of feels um, you know, so we worked really hard with, with Harris on, on a number of different things. I mean, his his fitness professional, Tom Hemmings, who works with us at, at Sea Island, has been a, a fantastic source of support to me. Um, you know, Harris has got a few little physical things that that uh, that, that occur through the year um, to to put him back a notch or two. But, you know, Tom's been great. And we, we talk a lot about the golf swing, what we're doing with it, how it is, how it's flowing. Um, and it's been a great thrill to see such a good fella, you know, do so well the last couple of years. Yeah, it's been really interesting just following Harris's, I suppose, progression from afar, you know, just as a as a golf fan myself. And I think anybody who watches the PGA Tour, you know, we were we were constantly seeing him up in the leaderboard. And I guess until I was doing a little bit more research just for this podcast and to ask you the questions, when I hear Harris English, I immediately think ball striker. Like I think of an absolute flusher and he, he is now, he's, he's definitely an all rounder. When you look at his, you know, strokes gain stats, I think for the last two seasons, he's been positive in all four categories off the tee approach around the green and putting. But what I kind of didn't realize is that up until the last two seasons, short game and putting were actually his strength and mm-hmm. it's been his approach and off the tee has improved in the last couple of seasons you told me something down in Torrey Pines when I met you. Um, I don't know if you remember it, but it definitely stuck with me. We were just kind of small talk about players we were working with and kind of some of the stuff we were doing. And what you said about Harris was that one of the things that had made kind of a big difference for him, in your opinion, was that getting him into the mindset of doing the exact same thing over and over again in his practice, even to the point that it might become really boring. Does that mm-hmm. kind of, do you, do you remember that? Or does that make yeah. sense to you in terms of what you might've been trying to instill in him there and what that actually means? I think at the time you were talking about something in his takeaway that you mm-hmm. guys had just been constantly trying to to basically stay on top of. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the best 
the, the best players in the world are, are very aware that golf's a very chaotic sport and there's a lot thrown at you in golf when it comes to the various lies, to the wind, to the flag locations, to a, a lie around the greens that you haven't seen before. So if you can set a structure for them where the things that they're not having to be um, having chaos thrown at them in terms of their mechanics and what they're doing when they get to the driving range. And then, you know, then they can start to react to the chaos of, of golf. And I, I do think there's, there's something in that. And with Harris, you know, specifically, he was, he was trying so many different things. He was trying a different golf swing almost every week. He was trying a different swing thought every week. So there was really nothing in his, in his game that was, was occurring over and over and over again. A constant, a, a, a constant. And as you can see with Harry, he's a very repetitive type of player and he gets into a very specific type of rhythm you see him chewing that gum and walking that walk and he's one of those guys that responds really well whenever he's doing the same thing over and over again and frankly he's really not afraid to continue to do that and he, he um you know he understands the, the the value of hard work and the value of repetition and consistency you know as has been reminded to me over the last couple of years doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing even the perfect thing every day, or sometimes even the most scientifically correct thing every day, consistency comes from doing the same thing every day. And, you know, everyone's got their own individual way to swing the golf club. You know, you see different body types and different shapes in the gym every day. You, you can fully understand that no two people are the same. So I think with Harris, it was it was getting him to do the same things all the time. And he, he got a lot of comfort in that and obviously got better. So, kind of amateur golfers and people that aren't around, you know, elite golfers as much as you are, I think it's all, they're often interested in how do the, the tour players and the world's best players get so good? Or kind of another idea is what do they actually spend their days doing? Like if you're a professional golfer and you're, obviously if you're not in a tournament, you have all this, you know, time off, how much of it would you say is, just being extremely devoted to doing what might be, you know, a little bit mundane things over and over again, but trying to get better at them, almost making sure that you're really calibrated and and dialed into what your your fundamentals are. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good question. I think that's from a from a coaching perspective, the the idea of sharpening skills, sharpening skills within an already extremely elite level player um and that's something i've really tried to challenge myself on my like my short game instructions completely changed over the last like year and a half um harris has got a great short game brian harman's got an unbelievable short game michael thompson who i was working with for a couple of years incredible bunker player so it's like how do you take that skill and continue to sharpen it so it's 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 kept me kind of thinking right well i'm gonna have to challenge them with games and um different uh, approaches that challenge that skill and just bring it like incrementally up because it's not a technical thing we're going to have to change at that point. It's not a technical improvement, but you know, if you, if you have certain approaches where you can, you know, incrementally improve those skills and then zero in on one or two things that maybe they aren't particularly good at, that you can then give them just a little bit of uh, technical assurance and, and maybe a little bit of a, a maneuver into a different way of doing something, you know, then you start to get real rewards. And certainly from a short game point of view, you know that's something that's interested me because as we as we navigated our way through like understanding the way the club moves and wedges and the bounce of the golf club and all the bits and pieces that we know um you know as, as you and i who love the game of golf mike know you can't be thinking about too much stuff when you're actually playing the game of golf um so when you're when you're coaching players you certainly want to have them in a mindset that they're they're performing and they're being pressurized and they are winning and losing in, the, in their practice 
So I, I didn't have this question planned, but I, I definitely couldn't leave it go. I have um, one, of the, one of the best golf instructors in the world and has been coaching for a long time. You said in the last year and a half, your short game instruction has completely changed. Is that more to do with, say, things you've learned from a mechanical standpoint? Or do you mean more like you've been just introducing more games and having it more of like a contest type thing? I think introducing more games, having a contest, um, looking at ways to help them. You know, I play a lot of worst ball games around the green. And if, if, if those guys know that their worst balls inside of five feet and that they're not missing much inside of five feet, their idea that they're going to get up and down most of the time from fairly straightforward situations that, you know, they, they, they hold themselves more accountable to that type of thing. So it's, it's really, it's trying to challenge them so that when they go, if you, if you can make the practice harder than when they are at tournaments, um, and then when they go to tournaments, they, they, they find the scoring part easier. Um, then I think, you know, you're doing your job in my capacity anyway. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of amateur golfers never experience in their practice. I know amateur golfers' practice time is limited by nature anyway because they have other jobs. But unless you work with a coach or maybe, you know, you were lucky enough to, you know, have great coaches as a youngster, maybe be involved with certain panels or whatever, it's extremely rare that amateur golfers ever put themselves into situations where they're very uncomfortable in practice, where they're right. getting the same feelings of emotion that they might get, you know, with three holes to go in the Sunday stable forward. And if they can par their way home, you know, they're going to shoot 40 points or they're going to get to a, you know, a single digit handicap for the first time. Can you maybe just touch on why it is so important to come up with ways that you get uncomfortable in practice, even if it might make you feel like that you're not playing or hitting the ball or getting up and down quite as well as you would if you took away that pressure and made it easy? Well, I think you've you've got to be very careful with that, because if you if you begin to you know, if you begin to set your goalposts much, much higher than your skill level, then all of a sudden you're going to be in a position where the whole thing is going to malfunction again. And that practice time, which, as you correctly say, is so valuable, becomes something that's going to diminish your confidence as opposed to grow your confidence. So I think if, you know, it, it takes, you know, either a certain type of player or a certain type of coach to be able to go in and say, to your point, OK, you're a 15 handicapper and you've missed the green in an awkward position where you're on a tight lie over a bunker, you know, this is the shot you should play as opposed to, you know, this is the shot that Brian Harmon might play. And those two things might be very different. And I think uh, to probably too many of us in the golf world, um, we think that everyone can do everything really, really well. And we've got to figure out, you know, what, what a certain player can do, what the skill set, the true skill set is. And then again, you know, gently nudge those increments up so we're not diminishing confidence when we're trying to grow it yeah no that's that's fantastic i think that's something that depending on sort of the stage that the player is in in their development and maybe what their goals are trying to get that balance of you know really maybe a term for it would be like ugly practice where you know they're under an awful lot of pressure and and yeah. things are nerve-wracking versus maybe things that are in a slightly more controlled environment and trying to develop skills because when when even when I talk to the to the tour guys, you know, when Harris has had great success, and Brian, you know, I was on the on the pitch and green at Augusta on Sunday, and Brian was in the I think the second to last group or so on the on the Sunday, like they are under pressure, but they're having fun, 
you know, because they're playing well and they're, you know, they're playing well on their terms. You know, they're, you know, for Brian, his short game was great. We went to that little pitch and green at the back and we did our little short game exercises. And, you know, he was he was telling me that he was feeling nervous, but I think he was ner- nervous anticipation as opposed to nervous dread. So we don't want to get the players dreading what they're going to do. You want to get yeah. them you know, excited about what they're going to do. No, that's excellent. Um, Liu stays in. Most people mm-hmm. are very familiar with his swing. Like people talk about it all the time. If you if he's in contention, which which he has been a lot lately, especially in majors, we see multiple slow mos of his beautiful action. What a lot of people don't realize is just how good a putter he is. So in the last few seasons, and um, what's interesting is in 2017 he was tenth in strokes gained putting. In 2018 he was 121st which we'll have to go back to in a second. And then in 2019, 2020, he was 55th and 50th. And then last year in the 2021 season, he was first. So four of the last five seasons, he's been inside the top 55. One of them was 10th. One of them was first. We also had one that was 121st. Can you maybe tell us what the difference was between 121st and first? There's not really a huge difference between 55th and 10th on tour, like the strokes gained are, are yeah. marginal, I would say, in putting. But we definitely have a difference between 121st and first. Yeah, um, I would say that he, um, I would say he had a structure. He worked with Phil Kenyon for a year or two. And, you know, Phil is a, a great friend of mine and a fantastic putting coach. I think he had a little bit of a structure in place. Um, and I think as that structure sort of dissipated, I think he moved. I think that was around about the time he was, you know, he was moving, you know, more full time to America and different things were kind of fluctuating. Uh, you know, and I remember an email that I sent to him and I said, look, you know, and oftentimes, you know, um, you know, I just have to give Louis like my thoughts and he's such a good player. He can end up taking him on board. And I said, listen, I would love I would love to see us get a full season with the same piece of equipment. So, you know, that was kind of number one. And, and uh, you know, he's in terms of putter, you mean the same putter, yep, for, just yeah, same yeah. putter, same grip, the same look. Um, and, and I remember talking to Phil about this, and Phil said, "You know, sometimes when you're dealing with a genius, the genius has to has to experiment a little bit. You know, he has to get different paintbrushes out and do things. And whilst I, I, I think Louis um, early last year and uh, just before COVID, I think we were in, I think it was a tournament in Mexico, and I think he had a really like a, a weird good week with a putter. It was one of the ping putters. It looks a little bit like a." A motorcyclist with a helmet you know when you look down at it um and he putted with that for uh just for that tournament and it, it you know it bounced him up but pretty much he's stuck to the same thing he stuck then to the same the same structure on the putting green before you go and play in tournaments he struck to this you know and i said to him look i'd love to see you doing the same routine and you can recall the little routine that he does where he slides his hands up and down the putter takes one look and then pulls the trigger so a, a lot of the stuff that he did was really, again, going back to consistency, was just getting you know someone who's clearly a brilliant player. I mean, he's, he's, he's been up there in those categories before. He can clearly read greens. He can clearly start a ball online. He's got, clearly got great speed. And then giving him a structure that allowed him just to, you know, putt a little bit more subconsciously. And as, as we did that, you know, we saw the, we saw the results um, go. And, I, you know, one of my – the things that I'm going to remind him of this year is that you know, just because he led putting last year doesn't even mean anything. You know, we're in yeah. a new season, and you've just got to go out and, and, and do your work, and, and then let's let's see whether they go in or not. Because you know it, that can add pressure as well, and uh, that's pressure that's probably unrealistic and not really required. Yeah, I think what a lot of people might not realize also is that 
like the best putter on tour and tour average, it's it's less than a stroke around separates mm-hmm. them in terms of what they're actually gaining and losing on the green. So the margins between going from, you know, first in putting to kind of middle of the pack in putting are really, really small. So it's it's just phenomenal. He's been up at that level, I guess, so many times in the last few years. It, it shows how good his skill is. It's not just a once off. 100%. Um, two questions uh, kind of continuing on with, with this vein of thought, Justin, and then we're going to uh, change gears a little bit towards the end. But you mentioned in Sea Island some of the technology that you have, that you have available. Mm-hmm. What do you tend to use on a on an everyday basis with with tour players? Like obviously, I think you know we know you use a launch monitor for making sure how far the ball is going and what the club is doing coming into impact and that sort of thing. But in terms of three D or force plates, are these things that you tend to use a lot? Yeah, you know we've. When, when we opened our school in Dubai, we run the advanced motion measurement system that you're probably um, familiar with, That's which was AMM, a, a correct, yeah, That's elect, electromagnetic, and and that was a you know that was a that was a great. I was really learning the the 3D world a little bit uh, with that um, piece of equipment. As I've gone through, you know, we have a gear system, and I have Patton, Harris, and Brian all on there. I I know the system, you know. A lot of times with, with, with 3D, I think it's confirming, you know, I hope that it's confirming the direction that you're already moving in. I know, I know that you can't see everything and I would be, I would be foolish to ever suggest that I would do. But and at that level, you know, my intention for 2022 is to get all those guys on, you know, let's say I think once a quarter is going to be unrealistic. I think one, twice a year would be a fantastic way of creating a good baseline for them. Um, you know, I use Swing Catalyst. Um, you know, I still use video an awful lot. Like I grew up in that. The cool thing about what happened to me, and I think it probably just happened to me more than it being ever a, something I was trying to do. You know, I grew up being obsessed with positions and looking at videos and things like that. And then I got into the 3D world. So I, I think of the golf swing in three dimensions. And a lot of times when I'm teaching it, even on video, I'll remind people that, you know, if you're looking at this on face on, you know, this is going to look like this because it's closer to the camera or this is going to look like this because it's further away from the camera. And I'm certainly teaching in three dimensions, and I still, I still pretty much teach a lot from from video and in the studio where I have the cameras set at the at the correct places. I think it's going to evolve. I think we're we're getting closer to really good 3D uh, markers with with some of the stuff that's going on with with you know even video transitioning video into 3D. Yeah. You might have seen some stuff going on there. It's not still particularly accurate. Um, but the golf swing at the end of the day is still a movement. You know, it's a, it's a motion. It's not a, there is no static in the golf swing with the exception to the setup. So, you know, you, you really are teaching movement and that's where, you know, I find the link between what you do and what I do and, and how we're trying to, trying to, to get closer together uh, with the fitness pros and the people who understand the way the players' bodies are moving. You know, I think that's the future of our, I think it's the, it's the present of our sport. I think it's going to become even more the future of our sport when it comes to, dealing with the technicalities of, of swinging the golf club. Yeah, excellent. That's where we're going to go into next. I just have one more question that I think would be nice to sort of wrap up this section. Um, you've talked a lot so far about things that you do with your players that isn't really, say, what I would term like golf instruction. You're, you're not teaching them, you know, different parts of the swing or different shots. It's also, it's it's basically what I would say, holistic coaching. Like you're doing a lot more than teaching them, like this is what's wrong with your grip or this is what you need to change in your backswing. What I'd be interested to know, and maybe some of the listeners would be, what areas are you trying to study 
to get better as a golf coach that are not, say, just specific to golf? Areas where you're researching or things that you like to read or people you like to learn from that aren't, say, in the golf world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, neuroscience, I have a big, you know, and I, I, I just feel like, you know, that, that needs to all be part of what we do. You know, the, the physics of how the golf clubs are moving through, through space. Um, the brain activity to me is really, really interesting. I, we know that the, the, the brain of a golfer, a really elite level putter, when they're standing over hitting putts, is a, is a very quiet part of the brain, which is right in the back, close to the subconscious brain. The, the, the brain of activity of somebody who's learning something for the first time is very noisy, and it's up here in the front of the brain. Um, we're still trying to figure out what the brain activity would be for a full swing all the time, because again, we have this chaos that's thrown at us where we have a different lie and we're creating something that's, you know, that we, we may have practiced before, but it's in a different situation. Um, you know, so I'm, I, I, I study, I kind of study the human being a lot, you know, and I, I think that, you know, that from the way the brain works to the way the body works to the way uh, different situations affect the human being. I'm very interested in, you know, the way we are when we're 15 is different to the way we are when we're 20. And when we're 25, we think about what we feel like when we're 25 compared to 15. We feel like it's an absolutely huge amount of time. And then between 25 and 35, it's a different amount of time. And, you know, now I find myself at 45 with two kids. And, you know, you find that the, the psyche is very, very different. The chemicals are very, very different. And, uh, you know, those are all things that I that I think about and look at. And, and whenever you know, I, I recently, in the last year or two, had learned that the average world ranking drop of a player when they have their first child is 30 places. Um, and we know when a, when a, a male has, a, has their first child, they become protective. Testosterone goes down a little bit. Attitude's going to change a little bit. And that's notwithstanding the time that people might have and the, and, and the, the different like real life type situations that we, we have. So you know, when you're dealing with these guys, you, you know, you're, you're dealing with them as human beings and them as golfers. I mean, most of them are true. If you've got your, if you've got one of those little PGA tour badges, you're already a brilliant player, you know, so it's, um, you're, you're dealing with them as human beings and I'm helping to, you know, make sure that the time they have is, is well spent and make sure that they understand that if they're going through a few things, it's probably natural within the, the human experience. Yeah, no, that that's excellent. Going back to um, brain activity and what might be going on in the brain when we're in different situations on the golf course, the only kind of product or measuring device that I know of that has you know attempted to to help us uh, quantify this is the focus band. Have are you familiar with that? And have you done some work yeah. with this? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I've I've had a couple of players who've used it. Um, it was very much monitor. I think from what I can, and somebody may well tell me that I'm mad, but I think it was monitoring frontal kind of lobe activity. Um, I'm looking at uh, a company called Optius that are the, the first kind of dry sensors. So you used to have to put these wet sensors on your head to be able to figure out what was going on in, in deeper parts of the brain. Um, they've created a, a system where they've got a dry sensor um, where you can attach it and you can figure out is it coming, is there stuff going on in the front, in the middle, in the back. OPTIOS. Um, and I think those guys are going to come down and pay me a visit down in Sea Island. Um, they they kind of know what's going on in a the world of special forces. They've looked at that. They kind of know what's going on with, with elite level putters. And, you know, I think I'm going to try and help them figure out you know, what's going on with a guy who's trying to hit an eight iron into a little flag with a right to left wind and, you know, different little activities that you might find that are uh, that are not just as as 
simplistic, let's say, of hitting a 10-footer on the left edge. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because golf has come so far in terms of measurement and quantification in terms of ball flight. Like, we, you, well, you, you definitely know, um, like, when you're looking at, you know, these launch monitor numbers, like, because the face was pointing here and the path was traveling this way, that's why the ball started here and, you know, hooked 25 yards to the left. Mm-hmm. But I guess what we don't know is, and this is why that sort of thing would be really interesting, if a player is exceptionally good at that in an environment where they're not nervous, they're not under pressure, they're very comfortable, what's happening in the brain that makes that same task very difficult to recreate you know, when you're, you know, hitting the 18th tee shot and there's, you know, OB left, yep. water right, that, that sort of thing, basically, which which we've all experienced, kind of regardless of the level of golf you play, we've all um we've all been in a scenario where you've gotten very uncomfortable and you've you've reverted from, I guess, your normal movement pattern. And that's where you you know, that's where in, in training these play, you know, yes, I completely agree with you. Whenever you introduce stress to the system, you 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 Put the cortisol level up and the testosterone level drops a little bit and all of a sudden the hands may sweat and the butterflies may go in the tummy and the muscle structure changes and then the golf swing changes well is that a golf swing thing or is that a brain or a, a, a response to a situation and sometimes the response to a situation could be just be a, a wind into them off the left or a, a tree that sits to the left edge of the fairway just something in the visual or something in the in the sensory world that triggers that stress and, and i'm always trying to trigger it in practice with players if i can get them to to experience that because then we can start to figure out how to how to address that and uh you know oftentimes i think that you know that is kind of the sweet spot of things when you when you look back at what tiger did so well he was able to lower his heart rate to to a place where he was really um he knew he he knew where he was and that was the place he trained in um and he was able to take those highs and lows and bring them back to where he where he needed to be and you know, I think the certainly the brain in regards to golf is is the is one of the last places where we really don't know enough. Um, so I'm excited to be trying to figure some of that stuff out. Yeah, that's no, that's really interesting. I think obviously Tiger was a master at it. Someone that popped into my head when you were explaining that too was Jason Day when he was at his best. He used to have you know almost the the eyes closed for a few seconds, really trying to you know I guess center himself or visualize the shot. One of the things that I think will become more mainstream in performance, it's already quite popular now, but is people learning how to meditate, um, mm-hmm. which which sounds kind of, you know, corny and airy-fairy still in, in some right. parts. But, you know, it's it's definitely something that I think once people kind of look into it and the fact that, you know, we can, um, or, well, like researchers can measure what's going on in the brain. And what's fascinating to me about the meditation research is that, People often think that it's just, you know, a a mindset or a mood that you change. But when they look at the research, there's literally structural changes happening in the brain. Like it's not just a case of you feel different. Literally, your brain is different. So I, I try and look at it as basically like almost like, say, weight training for the brain. It's like the way you build up your muscles with physical training. You're building yeah. up areas of the brain with with these different types of of mental practices, which obviously over time can have a huge effect. That's incredible. And, and that's referred, I mean, the, I think that's referred to the neuroplasticity of the brain and the fact that we can actually change it uh, to your point. You know, one of my guys said, you know, it was a, he would like to be able to meditate within chaos. So, you know, meditating in a room where heavy metals play and or something like that would probably get closer to, 
you know, standing on the first tee at Royal County Down with the wind in your face and the out of bounds on the right, and you're thinking to yourself, right, you're going to straight stay calm enough to hit this shot. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting there too is these are often things that like elite players or people who have gotten really good at something, they've already learned how to do this. They just haven't realized that they're doing it. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a case of like, it it doesn't take a genius kind of to figure this out, but the players who have been in these situations more and more and more, they're the ones who tend to learn how to come up with mechanisms that help them cope with it. But I guess the idea of the meditation or whatever type of mental training is that you don't need to go through, hopefully, so many, you know, failures are are, ne- are negative, um, you know, experiences in these situations before learning ways that you can deal with it. You know, hopefully you yeah. can speed up that learning curve a little bit. 100%. Um, Justin, one of the things that you said that you thought would be worthy of discussion during this, uh, during this chat was the ever-growing link between golf coaches and physical trainers. Can you tell us what this means for you and your players? So I don't know if all your players work with the same, say, physical trainer and physio, if there's a mix and match, but usually the the golf coach is what we would say the the top of the tree in this relationship, apart from the player, because they're their technical coach and the the physio or the trainer are, are support staff. So can you tell us how you interact with either physios or physical trainers for the players you work with? You know, I think I think it is an ever an ever growing kind of linkage. Um, I sometimes, you know, I think the first part of the question is, you know, like you, you said about the golf pros kind of at the top of the tree. And I'm I'm both comfortable and uncomfortable with that. I think, you know, ultimately the players it's amazing when you're coaching the players, they really are, when they're invested in what you're doing, they really are thinking about the things that you're giving them to do. So, you know, you've, you've been playing a lot of golf. I look at your stuff and, you know, the speed stuff and all, the, you know, when you're standing over that golf ball, you're, you've got thoughts in your mind and those thoughts are, are arriving from somewhere. And, you know, our, our job as, as golf coaches is to communicate with the, the guys in such a way that whatever they're thinking about is, the best course of action for them to hit the golf ball the best that they can. So in some ways, I think we are, you know, we are at the top of the tree, but at the same time, I think from a, from an element of, of support staff, I see us all very much in the same sort of realm. Like, I mean, I've got uh, Tom Hemmings who works at the golf performance center with, with Harris, Randy Myers, who works with Patton and Brian. Um, I have Marnus Morace on the road who works with Louis Oosthuizen I've got Cornell Driesen, who works with with Brandon Grace. I've worked with Kevin Duffy, who's you know worked with Louis over the years. Um, David Donatucci in Florida, who who worked with Peter Uline when I worked with Pete. Um, the, you know, there's been a bunch of guys, and it's it's a fantastic uh, tool. Not tool is the wrong word. It's a fantastic linkage for us to have somebody who understands how the players' bodies work and understand you know how the golfer moves and what their tendencies are and and and. You know, I, I still think that we are fundamentally not doing our job if we're asking people to do things that they can't physically do. And I still ask people to do things that they can't physically do. And I still think, what are you, what, why are you doing that? You shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. And, and sometimes there's a, there's a real reason for it. But if, if we can figure out what they're capable of, have people like yourself and and Marnus and Tom and Randy to be able to develop that side in tandem with what we're doing, then we can create much, much better athletes and guys who are going to, 
you know, be injured less and swing the golf club much more effectively. And I think, you know, in most cases, that's what really what it's all about. You know, I, I see Harris getting into positions and patterns where I can look at, you know, potential injury prediction almost. Um, I see Louis doing the same sort of thing when his golf swing gets a little bit off. It's normally somewhere around about his right hip complex that he hasn't quite been, you know, either either functioning or he's been traveling a lot and things are hydration's not there and he's not quite right. Um, so I think as a team, I think we can we can begin to see that. And I think furthermore, as as, as guys like yourself start to evolve, and I'm you know I've seen Marnus you know evolving, and you know we talk now more about the golf swing because you guys are, are are certainly understanding the movements. And as the game has become more explosive, you know you guys have taken it on board to understand how where power comes from and how to use the floor for more energy and things like that. So. You know, we we have to kind of keep up with you at the same time, and I and I think if we're all on the same page with that, then I think we can uh, again create better players. Yeah, I know that that's definitely you know good points. the The way that I try and and look at it with the players is that, or or if I'm talking to coaches or or anyone else, is that as a as a physical trainer, there's there's three major things that I think we can we can help players with, and you kind of touched on on two of them. Number one is is hopefully we can help reduce the likelihood of their injury because th- the first thing everybody considers, like if I'm working with a tour player, is oh it's it's club head speed, like you're trying to help them hit the ball further, and that's you know absolutely one of the goals. But question number one is always like, do you have any nagging injuries that limit you from practice and playing as much as you want? Because if they are there that's obviously going to be a huge barrier to improving your quality of play. If you, if you can't practice and play as much as you want, that's a big issue. The second one is, is there physical limitations that are affecting you from making the movement that either you or your coach would like you to? Um, and then the third one, which is definitely by far my favorite one, is just the raw physical capabilities. Like where are you in terms of your athletic potential um, and how can we get you closer to it? And what's been amazing kind of in, in my short experience with really high-level players and a lot of people, especially if they're familiar with other sports, find this hard to believe is that I often tell the tour players, you know, you're a 9.5 or, you know, 9.9 out of 10 in terms of your golf development, but your their physical development might be honestly like 4 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I never mean that in an offensive way, but it's amazing how good players have been able to get without really, you know, tapping into anywhere near their athletic potential. Absolutely. And I think that comes back to, you know, that that ability for a really good player to get into a pattern that's, that's again, to your point, might not be maxed out from an athletic standpoint, but getting into a pattern, stabilizing that pattern so the club's hitting the ball the same way each time, they're growing confidence with that pattern, and then they they play golf with that pattern and uh you know that's where when you see you know these really great players like louis for example i mean louis golf swing hasn't changed a great deal over i remember watching louis hit a shot in dubai when he was 19 years old and um i couldn't have been 19 maybe he'd be 21 22 years old but he was his first desert classic and he's, he's still at the same blue beautiful fluid type of rhythm and balance um, you know, but as, as everyone, we go through all those fluctuations as, as we go through life and, you know, you have to keep an eye on things. But, you know, to your point, I, I think you're right. You know, they've, they, they don't sometimes max out that athletic capability. And certainly from my perspective, you know, 
you know, I've got a, a you know a player with a bad back, and I've got a player with a with a sore right hip, and I've got a player with a sore thumb, and you know all of those little things that nag onto them through the years. Because the tour life is a really attritional life. They play an awful lot of golf, and it's a very very stressful you know it's a very very stressful uh, endeavor. And a lot of times it's not a lot of fun. You know when they're not yeah. playing well, it's not an awful lot of fun. So you know there's there's, there's times where there's going to be injuries, and and that's where again with with the correct type of training regimes and the correct type of you know proactive start the day like this finish the day like this you can you can get the body ready and then reset it and hopefully uh you know golf's not golf's just not very friendly to the human body simple as that we bend over and we rotate and the body doesn't really want to do that um but that's our uh, that's what we love to do so we better just get used to it yeah no definitely and i think what's what's kind of interesting or important there too is i mentioned and you kind of agreed with it that players don't max out their athletic potential in terms of raw physical capabilities like speed and power and strength. But what a lot of them also don't do, and it's it's a word that I kind of don't really like that much in golf, a lot of players also aren't as efficient with their technique as might be stated by, you know, 3D or force plates or something like this. Like, I'm sure that you know this way better than me and you've probably experienced it. You might measure a player on any of these systems and you might be looking at it and it's like, well, this isn't, you know, quite where it could be in terms of maximum efficiency. But then you need to remember this player is one of the best in the world. Like there's no way we're taking him away from what he does to be this great because a, a model might suggest that he could be better. Like I think that's a, a really dangerous game to get into. Is that something that you've maybe experienced yeah, it's. It, I was so fortunate to work for the Harmon family where they said there's no one way to swing the golf club. Your job is to figure out the best way to swing the golf club for each individual. And I, I you know, I looked at those, you know, I remember looking at those reports when I started really getting into 3D in 2008, 2009. And, you know, Padraig's sequence was different to Ernie's and Ernie's sequence was different to Freddie Couples and Freddie Couples' sequence was different to Davis Love. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, you know, there's just no one way to do it. And, and to your point, if you ask Patrick Harrington in, in 2008 to hit 15 shots, his sequence would look exactly the same for 15 seven irons because he'd he'd got himself into that really good pattern state that allowed him to win, you know, two Open Championships in a row and, and a PGA Championship. I mean, he uh, you know he was he was one of the best players in the world for four or five years, and 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 then as you saw him struggling a little bit more, he started to try lots of different things, and that would disrupt that. That pattern. So, you know, again, it's it's that old. Uh, you know, what what are we looking for? Are we looking for consistency, or are we looking for perfection? Um, and I think if we can gain consistency and then nudge towards perfection, then I think we're probably doing our jobs. Yeah, no, that's great for anyone listening who picked up on what Justin said there in terms of Padraig's uh, uh, his state, the state that he was in when he when he won his three majors in the thirteen month spell. He just wrote the introduction to Bob Rotella's latest book called Make Your Neck Shot Your Beck Shot. It's basically the first chapter, and it's actually a really, really good read. He talks about exactly kind of how he prepared for those tournaments, and it's it's really, really interesting just on a side note there. Justin, everybody who listens to this podcast um, is really interested in physical training, and they tend to be really interested in club head speed, hitting the ball further. What do you do with your players to try and help them increase their speed? Or are you worried about trying to increase their speed in case they lose some control? Or what are the conversations you're having with your players about speed? Um, 
I would say that multifaceted really with with my guys i would think that uh harris english cruises around about 115 116 miles per hour so we feel like if he maintains that he's not really going to gain a great deal until he reaches 121 120 and i think in doing so to your point that might disrupt the system a little bit because then you've got somebody who's very very uh almost systematic and doesn't uh doesn't do really well with big big changes you know he likes things to feel the same way um i i reminded louis as he as he's gotten older his speed started to diminish a little bit and, and i reminded him of how important it because louis, louis was a fi- i mean he was a he was a pretty quick guy when he was in his in his late 20s into his 30s you know he was recorded at 121s and 122s at that point um, you know, and I just reminded him of of of, uh, of the fact that as we get older, we're going to start to decline a little bit. And um, I gave him some ideas as to how that might, uh, you know, he might start, you know, start to just put that slide in reverse a little bit. And again, really going in with Marnus and, and, and trying to make sure that he was able to load into his his right leg correctly. And when he does that, uh, he he finishes his backswing, and then he has that natural capacity to to create incredible heavy hit with with strong club head speed. Um, Brian Harmon used the stack training system, you know, Sasho's uh, stack training system you've seen. Um, Brian's one of those players who, you know, he's in and around about the 109 to 112 kind of area, and, and he would benefit a great deal to to getting that up to 115. Um, you know, he feels that if he misses a fairway out of Torrey Pines, let's say at the US Open, he's having a five iron out of Crushed. that. You know, mm-hmm. whenever all of a sudden, a, you know, even a Louis or a Harris can hit eight iron out of there. Um, I, I don't have a guy. I don't have a Bryson. Um, you know, I've spent you know many Pat, years modeling. Is is relatively long? Is he Patton Kazire? Is he Patton, kind of on the higher Patton's end of the speed scale? Yeah. yeah, and I think with with Patton, a lot of times it was really create. You know, he always had that like one sixteen to one eighteen. Um, but it was just the efficiency of strike as much as anything with Patton. He's a big unit too, though, isn't he? He's a he's a big strong man. He's a, he's a, he's a big strong man. Six, yeah. six I mean, five, six five, yeah. Oh, yeah, six five. Extremely long legs, um, strong upper body, barrel sort of barrel chested for somebody who's who's as tall as he is. And we're trying to make sure in the gym that his legs catch up with you know with the rest of him all the time. You know, he's the he's the potential to put a lot of mass on with his upper body while his lower body stays very lean and very long. Um, so sometimes his lower body doesn't support him just as much um, as it should. And, and when it starts to, then he becomes more efficient. He basically puts the the middle of the club face on the back of the golf ball more, and then his his let's call it his smash factor or his his efficient like energy transfer to the ball goes up an awful lot. So. You know, again, multifaceted approach there. You know, some guys who who want to see see that whole thing nudge up. Some people who need to put the club on the ball better, and some people who are kind of happy where they are in a maintenance phase. It's been incredible what Bryson has done. Um, it's incredible what Victor Hovland's doing with his with his mechanics. Uh, you know, I think yeah. you know I gotta I gotta take my hat off to to Jeff Smith and and Victor and, and whoever Victor's training team is. Forgive me that, that you know I, I yeah. don't know exactly who's who's working with him, but um, you know those guys have done an amazing job because he's a he's a leaner, better, muscular looking lad who's who's really put the club on the ball properly. Yeah, Victor, I need to double check this. I think it's right. I think. Two years ago, Victor's uh, average ball speed on tour was 169. Mm-hmm. And then I think last year it was 174. And so Very far good. this year, it's 177, which is just a Very huge good. difference. Like one, yeah. 169 is is just below tour average. 
and 177 is probably in the top like 25 or top 30 like that's yeah. that's that's way up there it's it's probably 20 yards difference to carry from 169 to 177 approximately but I, I think mike i think when, when people come to see me and they say you know i'd like to hit the golf ball further i you know i normally say to them listen you've got You've got a few different approaches that are gain, going to gain you some some potential. I would say in third place, um, and I think it's gaining because we're beginning to understand a little bit more as mechanics. I think in second place is probably equipment, with certainly with the yeah. average guy. Maybe it's not so much the tour player. But then in first place is strength and conditioning and, and what you do. Uh, and, I, and I always make sure that I, I help people understand that because – it's, it's certainly not just a matter of you standing up there and just wishing at it as hard as you can. You have to, you know, you, you can't fire a cannon out of a canoe. You've got to create the stability and the strength and the, you know, and all of the, the bits and pieces of the puzzle that you guys can put together um, before we can make the make the, the Formula One car a lot faster. I mean, you just, you can't have it, have it coming apart as it goes around the corners if, uh, you know, if you're trying to drive it quicker. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. I actually, I wrote an article, I don't know, about six months ago uh, from my website, and I touched on four four major topics for increasing speed or distance, and you literally just named out three of them, mechanics, equipment, and physical capabilities or strength and conditioning. And then you you actually also touched on the fourth one, which is kind of, I won't say a gray area, but it's something that needs to be considered, but it, it's also a tricky one. I just call it intent. Our tactics oh, yeah. is, is yeah, yeah so, someone making a decision because it it is it is challenging to because even even if your you know technique is better and you know you feel good with how your control of the ball is it doesn't matter if your ball is going ten yards further through the air that brings in bigger dispersion because if mm-hmm. you miss it's carrying further into trouble so it is quite unnerving for players at that level. Because now they're going to golf courses where before they have to consider things that maybe they didn't in the past. You know, it's like I, I could not carry it in there before. But now if I, you know, hook this one a little bit, it is carrying in there, that sort yeah. of thing. And that's one of the things, like, obviously, it's not my job to tell a player, you know, what his intent should be on, on the tee boxes on the PGA Tour. But it's definitely feedback I've gotten is that, like, and you can act, what's actually really interesting, and I'm sure you do this too, is... um you can go through a player's shot link uh, stats on the the support staff website or whatever. And you can actually ask the player, like, even if you don't know the course, you can just say, you can see on hole eight, your club head speed was at 112. But on hole 16, your club head speed was at 117. What happened there? And they're like, were you watching the golf? No. Well, hole eight is really tight. And I for sure did not want to hit it right into the tree. Nudging it, nudging it. Exactly, but hole 16, you know, is wide open. And if I ripped it, I could carry the bunker, you know, on the dog leg. And that gives me an extra like 30 or 40 yards compared to not carrying the bunker and having to bail out right. So there is definitely a big combination of things that go into it. Yeah, and and further to that, you know, um, we often, with, with Louis, for example, we'll operate on about 13% between a Wednesday and a Thursday. Once his juices are flowing, he he hits the golf ball about thirteen percent further in tournaments than he does when he's just, you know, hacking around with you know with me or or playing with the boys in Ocala. He you know so when, when he begins to get that adrenaline and begins to get that flow and his his focus is, you know goes goes way up as you see it. You know he uh, you know he really is a different machine under the gun, and that's 
the same as whenever a, a, a hundred meter runner at the Olympics breaks the record in the Olympic final. Yeah. And how often does that happen? It happens all the time because that's the time when the the athlete is the most up for what they're doing. Um, so we find there's those extra little reserves um, as 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 players go up through the gears there, and that's why it's a, it, it's a tricky thing to coach. You know, sometimes on a you know on a, on a Tuesday afternoon, an eight irons going 148 yards, but then by the time a you know an eight irons hit on a Thursday afternoon, it's going 162 yards, and that's um, you know that's just part and parcel of professional golf. And that's where it's you know going back you know going back to your other point, it's like you've got to be very careful what you do with these lads because they're they're fabulous players to begin with. And it's, you know, to, to your point, you give a guy five miles an hour of uncontrollable club head speed and all of a sudden you've created a, a shot that goes right off the tee and, and the player's confidence goes down. And then next thing you know, he's, he, you know, he's, he's at 129 and the, you know, at the end of the year trying to scrape his yeah. card at Wyndham. And, um, you know, we're all trying to prepare, you know, prepare them to, to get the most out of what they can do. Yeah. That's, that's what I think, um, I don't want to kind of go into it in, in too much detail and, and maybe bore people or keep you here for too long. But when you look into the the strokes gained off the tee statistics too, and like I asked Mark Brody about this because I wanted to know, you know, what the potential benefit might be for players. Like if if you gain say ten yards on each of your fourteen drives, which is which is a which is a lot for excuse me, sorry, which is a lot for a tour player. I think if they hit the exact same number of fairways, I think they're gaining roughly about a shot per round off the tee. But like, it's so easy to give that back if one of them goes into a hazard or one of them goes into a spot where you're chipping out sideways. And that's, that's what I guess the big risk is with, with the extra speed, you know, is that, okay, yes, we can, we can get more incrementally on each hole, but it's so easy to give it back if one or two of them go somewhere where they wouldn't have with the lower speed. And, and also, you know, further to that, I think that's a very good point. Further to that, you know, if 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 you drop a golf ball at 135 yards, the tour average from 135 yards might be 24 and a half or 26 feet. Yeah. If you take somebody back to 155, it's going to be 32 and a half feet or 34 feet, let's say. And both of those scenarios are probably going to end up with that person hitting three strokes from that spot. Mm. They'll hit it to 24 or 26 feet, and they're over 32 or 34 feet, and then they'll two putt. So that, again, to your point, the, the risk of that 10 yards, which I, you know, in my world comes into strategy off the tee sometimes, is there on a narrow hole, is there a point in hitting driver when you're going to have 130 or 160? There's really no great advantage yep. gained if the risk of of getting offline at that point is is uh is going to mean that you're going to have to chip out a heavy rough or whatever yeah um, so again you know that's that's one of the balancing acts we have to do because hitting the golf ball far is a lot of fun i wish i could still do it um but uh it does, sometimes you know f- for those guys we've got to we've got to take a balanced approach to 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 how much we lean them in that direction yeah and then the only kind of thing that I would say on the flip side to what I said about how easy it is to give back the strokes you've incrementally gained on all your holes with one or two bad drives. The other thing that's really important to consider is the difference between your, say, average weeks or your consistency, but also the ability to get hot and to get really hot, which is, I think, what's um, rewarded so much more on tour than kind of general consistency. And maybe that's where the guys who potentially take some more risks off the tee or hit it further on the weeks they have the driver going really well, it's a massive advantage. 
but they might need to also realize that they're going to have more weeks where because they have so much speed and the ball carries so far that their misses are going to be in more trouble than, you know, the Brian Harmon or the Matt Kuchar or the Jim Fiorik or the Graham McDowell or whoever, you know. You actually, I, I won't bring up his his name, but you told me a story about a player down in uh, Torrey Pines. And that's kind of basically what you were saying. Like the player was in the 120s and you were saying that because he has this this much speed, I basically need to tell him, even if you are on for three or four weeks a year, there's a good chance that's going to be enough to keep your card. So don't worry too much about the weeks that aren't so good. If you're patient and you keep going with it, there's likely to be weeks where you're really contending. Whereas it might be harder for, you know, the shorter, more consistent player to get hot enough to win, even though he might make tons of cuts and have, you know, top 40s, top 30s. Does that make sense? It's a really, it's a really difficult thing. Um, in both in both worlds, it's a, it's a difficult thing because if you if you take a player and you say you know just go for it, go forever, then you'll be all right. And then he sees a seventy six against his name and a seventy four, and he yeah. doesn't get the weekend, and he doesn't have the momentum of playing the weekend. And then all of a sudden he's standing on the range, practicing when the boys are you know yeah. There's just it just it just drips away at the confidence, and it's it's dead easy. Like that's where I have to always mind myself, Mike, and sort of kind of go like. That these boys are, you know, they're going through an awful lot of stuff and you've got to get yourself into their mindset and kind of go, you're going to be very, very careful with what you, you know, what you, what you just flippantly say. Oh, oh don't yep. worry, you miss a couple of cuts. You'll finish third next week. You know, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a lot more difficult than that. Oh, no, of course. Justin, one more question and then I will leave you go. Is there anything that you can think of that is not mainstream in golf performance at the moment that will become mainstream? I think we got to go back to the brain stuff. I, you know, we're going to get get to a point where, you know, I hit the ball really well in the range. Well, I don't hit it so well in the course. Well, you know, here's here's a here's a here's why. You know, this is the way you're thinking. This is what your activity is, and of course, you're afraid of everything. You're not afraid of anything on the range. And I, I mean, it's going to be a bit like 3D. It's going to be well. Okay, now we know that those two things are different. We still have a, we we we've just now we've identified the problem. And now we factualize the problem. We still haven't fixed the problem. Yeah. So it's how do we how do we take those things and and, and then learn to coach the player into the solution? So I think the brain um, the brain stuff's very interesting. Um, you know, it's incredibly. You know, it's the people having their own launch monitors, having the access to. You know, we're it's so we're so far gone from people being able just to f- throw a video camera up and film their swings, which I think sometimes can be a, a disaster for some. Um, but some of the technology on the iPhone reading greens, you can read greens on the iPhone and things like that. There's some different little systems out there. So, um, you know, we're still uncovering things. We're probably still creating some problems where we shouldn't be. But uh, I guess we're all trying to do our best and still enjoy the game. That's brilliant. And what that screams to me, um, what you said about the stuff, the brain stuff, and also how important it is in terms of the physical development. I think that over time, um, either by the coach's decision or by the way that say uh, educational bodies change their curriculum is that elite golf instructors, people who want to coach, you know, real high performers, maybe not so much the people giving lessons on the driving range to the beginners. They're going to go about learning completely different things to try and help their golfers. I think what golf instructors were studying, you know, 30 years ago versus what golf instructors who are either active now 
or they're embarking on that as a career, the things they're going to be trying to learn about to help their players, I think might start to change based on how much equipment and technology is available and these things that you're talking about that are almost new problems. You're, or not, not new problems, but they might be problems that we eventually have ways of measuring and being able to objectively quantify. Yeah, I think in the, in the world of coaching, I think we, you know, at the end of the day, we are judged by our, you know, our, our knowledge and our, our um, technology need to be so almost set to one side and we need to be judged on our, you know, our, our understanding of communication, our understanding of human beings. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly very interested. I'm lucky that I'm interested in those two things and uh, I'll, uh, I'll keep trying to apply it and keep trying to make people better. Fantastic. Justin, thank you very much for your time. Just before you go, where can people find you online, social media, website? Are you available for lessons? Can people book them with you? They can. Um, Jay Parsons Golf on Instagram at the Sea Island Golf Performance Center. Um, I'm out in the road a fair bit. I love getting across the West Coast to see you. I'm going to get to uh, Palm Springs and then Torrey Pines. So hopefully we'll hook up and um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll not be strangers. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm available at the Golf Performance Center. Schedule's pretty tight. Um, but uh, for, for people who want to come down to Sea Island, we've got a great, we've got a great, great team of people and a great facility. And, uh, you know, people would have a lot of fun. Excellent. Justin, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. I learned from it and I think the lesson, the listeners will too. Thanks again. Thanks, Mike.